Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Welcome back, everyone. We are in our summer series where we're just hearing stories from various amazing first responders and frontline workers. I'm so grateful to join you again with an amazing guest, and I can hardly wait for you guys to hear it. Let's dive in. Um, It's great to have you, Mike. I'm so glad that you're able to be here with me today. It's going to be, I think, a fun conversation. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited for the, the topic. So... Um, you know, uh, mental health with corrections is something huge. So I'm willing to, and ready to talk about that. Yeah. That's awesome. It is really huge. I've had several corrections officers that I've worked with in my clinical work and it's really, unfortunately, a, like a, a, a segment of the population of first responders and frontline workers that I think gets overlooked quite a lot. Um, I know I hear that a lot from corrections officers as well as from social workers, um, that they kind of feel like the forgotten background noise of frontline work, um, that like police officers and paramedics and nurses get kind of the glory or at least the the attention in terms of the wellness practices and, and resourcing. And you guys kind of get like, you're just backburnered. No one wants to look too close at the things that you have to do in a day. Well, I think in order for them to look at where we're at, they have to take a look at what we're taking care of, the inmates and the bad part of society. And I think a lot of society doesn't want to admit that they have a lot to do with why those guys are there. Matter of fact, they have more to do with it than we do most of the times. You know, society is the one who decided we're going to have these laws. We're going to put people in jail. And so I think that's why in order to forget what's going on over there, I think they have to forget us a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to look at and it's uncomfortable to sit with what that then means about the choices we're making on a broader level. Totally. Um, I feel like we're diving into the thick of things before we even get a chance to get to know you. So Mike, why don't we back up for a second? And I would love to hear from you a little bit about your story. So tell us a little bit about how you entered into prison work and, and what your career has been like. Well, I I don't know that I ever thought about entering into prison work. Um, I was actually, when I got out of uh, the military, I went to work on an Island in the middle of the Pacific called Johnston Atoll. And I was a cook there Mm -hmm. for a couple of years. So I came back to Missouri and I was on leave and I'm looking around for some jobs and there's a cook at Missouri state pen. Now I've never been in jail. I've never, don't know anybody that knows jail. 
I'm just blank to this, but it's a cook job. So I, uh, I call up and apply and a lady calls me and she says, we don't need cooks. We need COs. I said, well, what's that? <laughs> and that's when she told me, you know, that they needed correctional officers and I needed a job, uh, was getting married, needed insurance, you know, that type of stuff. And I started at yeah. Missouri State Pen, which is at the time was known as the bloodiest 47 acres in America. It was an, um, hmm. it was an amazing, scary, crazy place to start. Um, I still have people that I know back then who, when you're in those situations, you become very tight with the people you depend on. Um, but I saw my first murder and suicide within a couple of weeks, uh, of being in there. It was a regular thing to have staff assaults. Uh, so it, it lived up to its name. And, uh, so I worked there for a couple of years, Hmm. uh, wanted to go back towards where my home was at and put in for a, uh, uh, an officer job at Ozark Correctional Center, which is in Southern Missouri. And I got to, got there and they offered me the chance to run a dog team. And so during my career, that's probably the, the, um, I don't know if I want to say the best part of my career, but I got to go out in the public. We got to go after find lost children, help elderly people who walked Mm. away from nursing homes, help law enforcement, find bad guys. Um, we got to go to parades. Mm. We had little coloring sheets and, yeah. uh, the kids would come up and they knew cool. the dog's names. So it was a, mm. it was a part of corrections that most people never see, you know, because we don't get that yeah. public interface. So yeah, let's see, I did that till 99. And then, uh, the warden came in one day and said he didn't want to pay for dog food anymore. And, uh, so I applied for the federal system and, um, okay. Went to Leavenworth, started there, another penitentiary, another rough place. Um, Gang violence Mm -hmm. was off the hook at the time and did that for, I don't know, a few years and then came back to the Federal Medical Center in Springfield, Missouri, which um, the, let's see, it's, it's kind of broke up into quarters. About a quarter of the inmates are cadre. They mow the lawns. They do that kind of stuff. About a quarter of them are medical inmates. Now, those may be lifers. They may be minimum security inmates, but they have medical problems that keep them there. About a quarter of the inmates there are on dialysis. It's the biggest, as far as I know, it's the biggest dialysis um, center in the United States. Last I knew, there was about 60 machines uh, running all week long. And about a quarter of it Mm -hmm. is... This is the way I describe it. If you take the Federal Bureau of Prisons inmates and you condense the cream of mushroom soup of the worst mental health inmates, uh, that's where they live. Um, And I spent a lot of my time there in the mental health unit for the next, uh, I became a supervisor and uh, I stayed there till 2015. And so saw a lot of stuff, crazy stuff, um, sad stuff. (laughs) <laughs> saw it all. And then they asked me to yeah. go open up the super, or well, it was uh, Thompson prison in Illinois, which was the, the special management unit for inmates who are problems. And uh, so I went and opened that up for the next five years. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Washington DC as the chief of the office of emergency preparedness, um, kind of run an emergency preparedness and all the special teams for the uh, Bureau of prisons. And retired at the end of wow. 2020 and 
started a podcast and went to work for Pepper Ball. So I still get to train law enforcement and corrections. I get to visit with them every week. And uh, so that's been great for me not to have to just break it off and step away. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's me. That's where I'm at now. (laughs) I have a wife, Catherine. I have two children. What a story. Yeah. That's amazing. How old are your kids? Um, I don't know exact ages. Let me guess here. I think Jacqueline's 30. I think John's 26. <laughs> I really kept, I quit taking track Perfect. when they left high I mean, school. old enough that you don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. Right. Right. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you have done some really amazing things in your career, Mike, and been exposed to some pieces that I think the average Joe may or may not be exposed to in the course of, of a lengthy career. In something like corrections, I think it's hard to have a lengthy career in corrections for a lot of people these days. Been married 30 years to the same lady. That's hard to do, too. I mean, I feel like she deserves an award, probably. Oh, I guarantee it. It sounds like there's been (laughs) a lot of moves and a lot of sacrifices along the way for all of this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's given up a lot. But uh, that, you know, marriages are one of the first things to go sometimes in corrections. So... Uh, we've held it together, yeah. and I'm proud of that. That's so. amazing. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank I'm, you. I'm curious. It sounds like corrections wasn't really the the plan um, in the grand scheme of things. So when you decided to say yes to that offer for going in as a CEO when you thought you were going to be a cook, what did you imagine it was going to be like? Like, what was your anticipation for what was going to feel like a good day or what was going to feel like a, a hard day when you entered into it? For the first, oh my gosh, for the first several years, I didn't have any expectation to stay. Um, my father was a firefighter. I grew up around police officers and firefighters. Yeah. And um, so I, I okay. knew public service. Um, but corrections was never part of that. And, uh, I think, you know, at the time I was applying for some police departments and some fire departments. And I, I thought that that would kind of carry me through until I got one of those jobs. And, um, so mm-hmm. I walked in one day and, uh, this was the turning point in my career. And I walked in the Lieutenant's office one day and I said, uh, Lieutenant, this Lieutenant, that, I mean, I was just bitching, you know, just griping about this and that. Mm. And he turned around at me and he said, are, are you on the lieutenant's promotion roster? I said, no. He said, then shut up. <laughs> if you're not willing to step up and fix mm. some of this, I don't want to hear it. And, um, yeah. so I got on there and I went into supervision and I kind of had to change, um, who I was and how I approached things because now I was leading people and mm-hmm. their safety was in my hands. And, so it gave me a whole new perspective yeah. on corrections. It wasn't just, you know, eight in the gate and just dragging through it every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was like a different intention in it, it sounds like. It gave me purpose. I don't think I had purpose yeah. with it before that. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like it kind of changes it from a job to something that has like meaning that feels personal. Mm-hmm. It absolutely did. I was able to affect change. I was able to change things that I saw that were wrong and I was able to help people. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of them I've, you know, brought up through corrections. Uh, I'm still doing that. Mm -hmm. I still get phone calls from people going, Hey boss, I want to put in for this job. What do you think? 
So that feels good. Yeah. You know, the mentorship that I got to develop. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cool when that gets to like align with some of how our, how our personal values feel and maybe in ways that we didn't even know felt important to us until we're doing it and we're in it and we're getting to see what that feels like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Doesn't mean it wasn't stressful. Doesn't mean that, uh, um, every day wasn't tough. I worked in, I didn't go to work in easy yeah. prisons. I mean, I worked in penitentiaries and mm-hmm. the mental health unit at Springfield. So, um, yeah. I will tell you that it affected my family. Um, you know, you can't not yeah. bring that home. Um, it affected my daughter mm-hmm. so much. Uh, mm-hmm. her dissertation is about, uh, stress in correctional families, uh, for her PhD when she got mm-hmm. her, uh, doctorate in communications. So that's what she did her dissertation on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a a fun legacy to get to hold in the midst of it. Yeah. It does say something. I mean, one of the common things that I say quite a lot on the show, and I say it a lot of my clinical work is that nobody comes out of this unscathed. And that goes for the people that do the job, but also for the families that, that serve them alongside. Yep. Absolutely. And the inmates. I mean, um, you know, I, I work on that other side, but, uh, there's inmates that go through prison and they have to live and deal with this stuff in a different way than we do, but they have to live with it also. Behind the line is sponsored by beating the breaking point. Beating the breaking point is a seven part online training program designed specifically for first responders and frontline workers and tailored to fill the gaps in your training to support resilience and sustainability. Whether you're new to the work and wanting to cultivate tools to prevent burnout, compassion fatigue, and related concerns, or you are deep into your years on the job and have gone a few rounds with burnout and other mental health challenges, this program offers the foundational pieces you need to support personal and professional wellness for the long haul. You are a helper, you love your work, and you sacrifice a lot. Investing in you and your sustainability is the best gift you can give yourself and those who lean on you. We make this program as risk-free as possible by offering a limited money-back guarantee to ensure that it's a fit for you. If you enjoy Behind the Line, you are going to love this program. Google Beating the Breaking Point Lindsay and find everything you need to get started or use the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Totally, totally. When you kind of think back on the start, and it sounds like you went in with not a lot of strong expectations, but were there things that surprised you in terms of what ended up feeling like it brought satisfaction in your work or what were the challenges? Like, were there things that that kind of came out of left field in terms of what, what you anticipated versus what reality looked like. Other than the dog team. Um, I don't think I realized any of the, the good stuff about my job till later in my career. Uh, the beginning of my career Hmm. was, um, it was a daily grind. Uh, when, when I started my podcast, my wife asked me, she said, who are you doing this podcast for? And I said, well, it's for the officer who's worked 16 or plus hours in a seg unit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no windows in most seg units. Uh, you're dealing yeah. with inmates at this roar 
all the time. You've just finished 16 hours. You walk out in the parking lot. It's dark and you don't remember what day of the week it is. And that's, that's the tough part. That's the part that everybody deals with in some form or another. Um, and Mm -hmm. I went through a lot of that. I don't know that I, um, at the very beginning at Missouri state pen, there was some fear. There was some, um, I don't know. The wife said I had some nightmares, you know, early on. Mm-hmm. And it was mostly me on the yard yelling at the tower to shoot because I was getting attacked. But uh, that was pretty early on. And after that, mm-hmm. you start learning to push that stuff back. Um, it's a very yeah. alpha male situation. Um, yeah. The, the inmates are alpha males. You know, the power is control in there. Uh, the weaker inmates get, mm-hmm. you know, fed up on like prey and the predators are after them. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't change just because you're an officer. If you're a weak officer, they will treat yeah. you as prey. Um, so you yeah. very quickly, which I've always, I mean, I'm a big guy. So people always looked at me and said, oh yeah, he can handle it. I'm a big guy, mm-hmm. but you have to build mm-hmm. that up. You have to build yourself up. Um, yeah. I don't know yeah. if that makes sense, but that's, totally. Yeah. That was, that was the change in me, um, was what I noticed. And, Mm -hmm. and there was a ton of stuff. I mean, the first suicide, and I don't, I don't know how graphic you get on here, but the first suicide, I had no awareness of how much blood was in a human body. Um, had never been around that before. I've heard that a lot, actually. You walk in there and it's coming up over the edge of your shoes in a cell. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's not something most people deal with, um, to watch, the face of people as they murder or stab another person and just see that blankness, there's no humanity in their face. That's a whole new, a whole new thought to process inside that there are people like that out there. Totally. If that makes sense. Yeah. Totally. So that answer your question? I've heard that piece. Yeah. Well, I love it. I mean, I love these conversations because again, I think you guys are the ones that kind of get pushed to the back. So I think, I've had this conversation a number of times, but only with corrections officers, a handful of times, maybe with police. Um, But they're usually called after the bad thing has happened. Not often in Mm. like, they're not necessarily witness to the thing as it is happening. Um, And you guys are, and you are every single day. And I think that that's a very different vantage point to be positioned in. And it sounds like for you, there's some amount of like, how, who I have to be in order to be here and be doing this and how that maybe feels different than the person I walked in the door as. And I think it was, I think I wanted to grow up to be a writer. Now I'm getting to do some of that stuff. Mm. Um, but I never thought of myself growing up and, um, I mean, I fought in school, you know, but it was never, it wasn't violence. It was, Mm -hmm. fighting in the schoolyard stuff. Um, So when you go face violence, when you go face true evil, because there is true evil out Mm -hmm. there, that's one thing you learn pretty quick. Um, I'll tell you something funny. You mentioned police officers. One of my best friends is a police officer, and he tells me all the time, he says, I don't know how you walk in there. He said, that's crazy. You don't have nothing on you. I said, I don't know how you walk up on a car not knowing whether it's a good guy or a bad guy, because at least I know everybody's a bad guy inside. Yeah. <laughs> <So we> always, <laughs> I know who everybody is here. <laughs> we always 
bug each other yeah. about that, but yeah, it's a different, even yeah. though we do a lot of the same stuff, it's a different career. Totally. Yeah, no, for sure it is. For sure it is. It's also very different to be immersed in it, right? Like a 16 hour day as a corrections officer, you are in it for 16 hours. As a police officer, you, right? Like there's that call, but then I get to go back to station and then there's that call, but then I get to go sit in the squad car for a while. And then there's a, but like, there are like breaks, there are downtimes, there are like moments to kind of like reconcile and come back together before the next thing. I don't think you guys get hardly any of that, if at all. No, and I had never really looked at it that way because once you walk through the gate, you stay in there where you go to the bathroom, where you eat, where you rest, where you, everything is inside the prison. And if the alarms go off, you run. There, there is no, I'm on break. (laughs) So yeah, Mm -hmm. it, it is, you're in there full time. Yeah. And you you become like, it is a very full immersion. You learn to eat ramen yeah. noodles. Uh, you, uh, I mean, you almost pick up some of the habits yeah. that that are go on in prison. Well, I mean, to some extent, I would imagine that you have to, right? Like, there's there's a certain amount of like adapting to know the evil I'm working with, right? And that to some extent, we have to adapt similar tactics and tools in order to be able to to battle this kind of monster, right? Like we have to come in and understand in order to be able to do and serve. Um, and so it's, it, I imagine that's a bit of a catch 22 that we have to kind of sacrifice aspects of our own sense of like self and humanity in order to try to get into the shoes of someone who has done so much sacrificing of their humanity. Right. And how do you then emerge back out and do regular life? Which I think is the question that I get a lot of clients sitting with me asking, how do you do that? How do I come back out and be with my, young kids who believe that the earth is beautiful and that people are wonderful and kind and trustworthy when I have just experienced the worst and hardest of it. Mm-hmm. And every day you have to do that. Yeah. It's not, you don't kind of come out totally. on vacation and do that. You have to do it every night when you come in or every morning or yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. So we're going to circle back there in a second. Cause I do want to hear given the length of your career and how and how you've remained committed to that kind of a career for so long. I think that's rare. Um, and I, I do want to hear about how you've kind of put pieces in place to be able to do that balancing act. But first, I want to ask you, um, I know you, you gave us this like really fantastic resume of this really cool career life you've lived. You cut out a little bit. Really neat pieces. Oh, sorry. Hopefully I'll pick back up. Do you got me? Okay, there you go. Now you're back. Okay. So when, <laughs> okay, perfect. So when you reflect on your time in the work, what are your big win moments? Like what will you look back on with a lot of fondness and admiration as you think back on your efforts in the job? The biggest that I took away, and a lot of this came towards the end, was when I went to Thompson, mm-hmm. Illinois. I opened up the new special management unit. So we were hiring staff and I was hiring uh, just tons of staff. We didn't open up for the first year because we're mm-hmm. doing all this hiring. So I spent most of a year training these brand new correctional officers. And here I was at the end of my career wow. with the knowledge that I had and the experience mm-hmm. that I had and the things that I'd seen and the resources. I mean, I, I didn't realize till then the resources I had gathered for myself and, uh, so I was able to sit down and put these classes together and 
really produced, and not by myself, by no means, mm-hmm. but produced some great staff. Um, that was probably the highlight of my career was getting to see that, um, getting to see them grow, mm-hmm. getting to see us get inmates. And then they walked in the housing unit and they were able to handle it. Several of them, um, I got to promote from officer to uh, lieutenant, you know, um, right mm-hmm. there during the time I was there. So to see that was yeah. special and meant a lot to me. Yeah. Yeah. That would be really cool. Yeah. On the flip side, mm-hmm. when you reflect on the work, what are the pieces that you regret or wish you could have done different? I don't know that I have a lot of regrets. Um, I do think I could have done a better job shutting it off when I came home. Um, both my kids will probably tell you that. My wife will tell you that too. It, it is a hard thing to mm-hmm. walk out of the roar mm-hmm. of inmate voices, eight hours worth of cussing, um, the things that are said to you yeah. that most people can't imagine. And then get in a car, drive 15, 20 minutes, open the door and go, hi, I'm home. (laughs) You know, that's a hard thing to do. Um, I don't know if you've got time and maybe if you want to cut this or you can. Um, So I used to write poetry and I actually put it all down in a book. But uh, I have a poem that I think explains me more than anything about that. Have you got time for that? Lay it on me. Yeah. (laughs) So this is something I wrote about the the time when I was having most of the trouble. Life is pretty. I see it all around. Pretty wife with green inviting eyes. Pretty kids looking forward, never back. I pat them on the head and kiss my wife. She's my lover, my guidepost sometimes. One last look at the pretty family. Pretty flowers on a pretty table. Pretty photographs display a pretty life. Then I leave. As I drive, I start to notice it. I could feel life becoming strained, tainted, and dirty. The prison where I work is out of sight, yet I could feel it. For eight hours, I try to block the nasty stench, the air. I try not to breathe. Washing, always washing my hands, trying to remove the slime, the filth, the dirt. But it won't wash off. The dirt is not on me. It's all around me, trying to get inside. Finally, the day ends, uneventfully. I return to the prettiness, all clean and safe. I am home again. But I am not all here. I left part of me there, washed away with the dirt. So. Mm. Yeah. That kind of sums it up. It's just, it was a cathartic way for me to um, put that into words, what I dealt with every day. Because I did have a pretty life. Yeah. Mm. Then you go look at the nasty. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So. What are the ways, aside from washing your hands, what are the mm. ways that you helped yourself kind of move from one space to the other? And, and how did you, how did you stay in it so long? Well, I'm still in it. Uh, I still, like I said, go all the time and get to visit these great people. But um, you got to have something outside of work. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, through a lot of my career, it was the uh, Highland Games. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but... Uh, it's a bunch of guys. Oh, shut up. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I, I love could... the Highland Games. That's yeah. awesome. So 
I don't know, maybe 15 years I uh, did that. So that gave us something to focus on on the weekends, gave me something to stay in the gym and That's train the and coolest. that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. We, and as a family, you know, every moment that we got, Missouri has, I think, 90 state parks and we've been to 88 of them. Um, mm. So, I mean, on the yeah. weekends, we just got up and went. And uh, I think that's what did it. Mm-hmm. I I also credit my wife. Um, so several of the places that I worked think that the only way to do stuff is the way they do it. Well, about once a year, she'd let me mm. just go take a class, whether it was a firearms class or a breaching class or a leadership class. And we'd pull that money out of the, you know, the stash and uh, she'd let me go do that. So I got to keep this bigger picture of what corrections was um, instead of just yeah. getting trapped in my own little world. I, I got to see corrections on a bigger picture, more agencies and stuff. And mm-hmm. with this podcast now, I'm starting to see it globally. Um, 18% of my listenerships out of Australia. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. now I look at it globally and I went to the mock riot uh, last two weeks ago. And I got to meet guys from uh, Ecuador and Colombia and all these foreign countries who are there doing the same thing I am. And so I think that helps you a little bit to know that Mm -hmm. there's a bigger community. um, And it's not just you because you feel that way. You get locked on those housing units and nobody Mm -hmm. else is there. Somebody comes and counts with you twice a night and it's just you and somewhere between Mm -hmm. 40 and a hundred inmates. So you start thinking that it's yeah. just you. Does that make sense? <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. I mean, I think that's to some extent why we created this podcast was, um, I think so many people who are in frontline work of any kind feel some amount of that aloneness, like even in positions where they share uh, space together and, and have more interaction we still experience a lot of what we experience feeling like somehow we're holding it differently or we're not doing it as well, or we're, um, we're worried about how the people who are around us are going to perceive us if we really like name how it feels to exist in it, because at some point we also have to have each other's backs and I need them to trust that I'm going to have theirs. So I don't want them to think I'm not okay, but also I'm kind of not okay, but because I don't share that, I don't know that everyone else is feeling that too. Right. And so I remember when we first started this podcast, I got emails for the first several weeks from various people. I had like a social worker and a nurse and a police officer and a paramedic all in a very short period of time email me and say, I was listening to your podcast. A friend sent it to me. I was listening to it on the way home and I had to pull over to stop and cry because of how I just felt like someone gets it. Hmm. And it was fascinating that they're not even hearing from people who are in their same profession, but there's so much shared experience in terms of what it feels like to exist in the degree of like chaos and uncertainty, as well as the very like messy political uh, bureaucratic systems that these workplaces tend to operate within, that there's so much commonality across that, that it didn't matter that they were from totally different professions. They all felt that same sense of like, oh my gosh, someone gets it. Right. And I, I do think you see that if if a correctional officer ever sees an officer needing help, I mean, they're there. When we go downtown, take those inmates yeah. down there, you know, we're there to protect the, the nursing staff as much as we are anybody else, you know. So I do think we feel a kinship uh, and that yeah. feeling 
having that feeling that somebody else understands you is great, but I will also caution that I saw a lot of people who took that and the place they found that was to go after work to the bar. And so there would be this, you know, Mm, bar full of people sitting in a line here, all commiserating about how bad their day was while they were drinking and it becomes a habit. Um, Now, not to say I didn't go out with my friends and have a drink once in a while, but you got to be careful not to let that become your life. Uh, You've got to have something Mm -hmm. else to do. And for me, it was family focused and uh, Highland games or something else. And then once in a while I'd go, you know, Mm -hmm. to the bar and I'd have a drink, but uh, I saw a lot of guys that just, that's every night. When when I worked at Missouri State Penn, I I remember going to, I can't remember the name of the bar, but it was right off a couple of streets away. And you'd walk in there and when you'd open the door, you couldn't wear your uniform and you could just see these Mm. rows of bar stools, guys with green pants and white t-shirts because they'd taken off their uniform shirt. Mm. And it it was, you know, you'd see 15, 20, 30 guys in there all, of course, dressed the same throwing back beer, trying to get rid of that day. Yeah. And uh, so something to be careful of. Totally. I mean, for sure. I love that you're naming that because I think you're right that there's these pieces in terms of how we, how we protect ourselves from the impact of the work by having other like interests. I love the Highland Games piece, right? Like we have things that we feel invested in that aren't just our work. I think one of the risks we have is over identifying with our work being our whole self and equally, that's true in relationships. Like our work relationships can kind of become our whole sphere of influence, which mm-hmm. is like risky when we don't have other people that offer a counterbalance and show us that not all of the world is this gross, terrible, awful thing all the time. We need those friends or family members or people who have a degree of like innocence and disconnection from that because they help reconnect us to the sense that the world is good sometimes. Because we can forget that when we get too immersed over here. I've done that many times. Um, My wife's reminded me of that. Yeah. You know. uh, Totally. Of course, one of the things every correctional officer's heard is those kids aren't your inmates. You know. (laughs) uh, We come home and we take some of that off on them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be a hard skill set transition. Right. To go from like having to be the one who's like in control in this one space and how we perceive that we're supposed to be in control as like a parent figure. But what that control looks like has to be quite different. At least theoretically, we should it should look quite different. It should. When you when you tell your yeah. kid to go to your their room yeah. or you're taking all their property, it, it's a clue that, uh, you know, you're not handling it right. <laughs> this is maybe not normal. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you've had a couple of really great pieces in terms of like ways that you've coped and kind of stayed connected to a sense of your own humanity. That's cool. How, how did you learn to adapt those pieces and keep them in your life through your career? Luck. Um, I hate to say it that way, but. Uh, <laughs> Solid answer. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm one of those guys. I have tried to improve myself piece by piece. Every year I've been alive, whatever that is. Uh, so I think maybe that's where I was able to grab a hold and and hold on to some of that until the point that it kicked in and it it worked. Yeah, uh, I was able to cool. try new things and see that they worked. Even as I was moving into those leadership positions, mm-hmm. 
I'd go get leadership books and, you know, this is how to talk to people because we don't talk to people normally, yeah. uh, CO to CO. Totally. <laughs> so now yeah. I got to be a supervisor mm-hmm. and I've got to be, a, uh, I've got to, uh, you know, get somebody on board. I got to get them to follow me. And a lot of those tricks I'd try over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I noticed it. I'll tell you one little yeah. trick, I guess. I remember feeling disconnected yeah. from a lot of the staff and, I, I don't watch sports. I'm one of those strange guys that doesn't watch sports. Mm-hmm. I've never watched an entire professional sports program in my life. It bores me to death. Well, that cuts out oh. about 80% of well, what you okay. talk to other guys about. <laughs> so right. um, mm-hmm. I remember I wasn't connecting with people. I wasn't talking to people at work. I'd shut down quite a bit. So I was listening to the radio on the way in. And I would come up with a joke of the day or the sports deal of the day. And then each person I saw, I'd go talk to them about the same thing. And I bet you I'd talk to the same person 20 times or the different people about the same thing Mm. 20 times. But it did form a connection there. And it did give me a reason to talk and that type of Mm. stuff that was outside of work. That's a cool tool. Yeah, totally. I I don't know if they ever... I find it funny. This is actually... It's been a conversation so much more since COVID has happened because I have so many clients, aside from frontline workers, just clients generally who are like, I feel like I've lost all of my social skills. I don't know how to talk to people anymore. Right. And so I've, I feel like I've made this suggestion multiple times each week where I've said, go Google conversation starters. Come up with like a list of five things that you right. could start a conversation with because we're all bad at it now. <laughs> Everyone's bad at it. So, right, like go go get... Like a couple of quick one-liners that you can throw out that get people talking and ease into conversations again, because it's hard. But when we have something that just feels like an easy kind of pre-planned and it's comfortable for us topic, it does let us kind of bridge to conversations with people that open up different kinds of avenues. Yeah. I don't know if any of them ever talked to each other and realized I was doing that, but uh, (laughs) yeah, it was easy for me. Uh, wouldn't it be funny if they were like all connecting every once in a while and like, oh man, today Mike's topic is this. <laughs> Get ready he's, for it. <laughs> he's been working in the mental health unit too long. <laughs> he's uh-huh, repeating himself. Totally. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So if you were to do it all over again, Mike, what would you mm. do differently? Is there anything? I would probably go federal first. Because of hmm. okay. the pay and stuff. But at the same okay. time, working at the state level, um, I, I, I just built connections with people that you don't build anywhere else. And I still, I talk to those guys um, because you're, sure. I don't know, it, it's like frontline stuff, you know, and, and you're protecting them and they're protecting you. And the state, everybody was broke. Everybody was, you know, everybody had ketchup and beer in their refrigerator back Uh then. Um, So we built this deep connection that's hard for me to say I would walk away from that. But um, as far as a job and insurance and, you know, the retirement that I got to do and stuff, going federal, um, Mm -hmm. I would have started investing in myself earlier and became a leader earlier Mm -hmm. because I spent nine years in the state of Missouri as a CO. And then it wasn't until, I think, 2008, 2009, when I promoted um, 
with the federal system. So, I mean, I was 16, 17 years as your base level CO, working the mm-hmm. housing units, working the jobs, you know, transport and stuff like that. And I did find a lot of self-satisfaction once I became a supervisor and a leader. And like I said, you know, I could start pointing things a different way and, and helping people. So I probably would have done that quicker. Um, people often ask me, you know, would you have went and got a college degree? Mm, Yeah. Okay. I I don't know. I put both kids through college. Uh, you know, I did all this at a high school degree and there's several of us that I've ran into over the years. You know, I retired as a GS 14 chief in DC with a high school diploma and, Corrections is one of the few places where you could still grab your own bootstraps and go to the top. Uh, You really, the job you do and how you do it, and granted there's politics everywhere, but the job you do and how you do it can carry you in this this field still. And I think that is probably Mm -hmm. true for police and, you know, other places like that. But uh, I don't know where else I could have, I don't picture myself somewhere else anymore. If that's, you know, mm-hmm. I, I did it. I did it yeah. pretty well. I'm happy. Um, so I don't, I, I don't picture yeah. myself doing something different. I don't know. Maybe archaeologist. <laughs> oh, like Indiana Jones. Right. An cool. Indiana Jones I mean, type. Good yeah. side alternative. Right. Yeah. Fair. Exactly like that with the fedora and everything. Um, you mentioned this piece about I did it and I think I did it well. And I'd agree with you. I think it's it's amazing the career that you've had. I I wonder what you think differentiates you and your journey from some of those who aren't able to kind of make it through that many years or um, kind of make it to the pension timeline. Like, what do you think? What do you think are the things that that allowed you to stay in as long as you were able to and remain as intact as you seem, um, where others really get broken by this job? I mentioned already family connection. I think that's huge. I think that was big for me. But I also think when you go into work, yeah, it's very important who you attach yourself to. And... I was careful, I think, to attach myself to some really quality people over the years. Now, whether they were the same rank as me or whether they were supervisors or whatever, I worked with some great people. Now, I've worked with some bad bosses, but uh, I attached myself Mm -hmm. to great people who still call me and check up on me. You know, I'm retired. Uh, So I think that would probably be, other than family, make sure, because there's always that Let me tell you a little story. So I go to work at Ozark Correctional Center and they put me on midnights. Of course, I'm a rookie, you know, so I'm on midnights Mm -hmm. and there's a guy working the front gate, old guy. And every night I'd go down there because I'd make my rounds and he'd go, you know, he just hated life. So six months in, there's a job comes open on day shift. And I said, I'm going to put in for this job. Mm -hmm. And he says, you're not going to get it. Nobody, they don't want you on days. I put in for that all the time. I don't get it. I'm like, okay. I went ahead and put in for it anyway. So <laughs> I got it. Six months in, now I'm on day watch. And I see the the captain. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, why won't you guys let Pete come to day watch? 
And he says, Pete put in for Daywatch once, 15 years ago. He's been sitting out there on midnights bitching about it ever since. And I think that was something that really stuck with me, you know, because I ran into a lot of those people who never were happy with their situation and didn't want anybody else to be happy with theirs. So I avoided them. Hmm. And and there are a lot of that in corrections. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I think that that's a really wise, a wise piece of advice to be able to kind of like nail down who the good people are, who the people are that can kind of keep you grounded and how do you stay connected to those people? And then how do you kind of like, I mean, we talk a lot on the show about the idea of boundaries, right? And how do we draw boundaries around ourselves to protect ourselves from some of those people that would otherwise try to sink us just because they're miserable and misery loves company. It does. And Mm -hmm. if you get those good connections around you, those people, and, and look at not just how they're at work, but look at their lives. If they're happy people outside of work, they're normally people, happy people inside of work. Um, and, and latch onto those people because yeah. they'll give you that little elbow nudge when you're headed the wrong way around the wrong people mm-hmm. and say, is that really what you want to do? Well, yeah. no, that's not me. Totally. And bring you back to the middle. Thanks for calling that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for so. sure. Okay. So I, given your career and the fact that you have done a lot of training, I'm going to ask you this question. I feel like you probably have a solid answer for it, but, um, if you could speak to students or rookies who are in your profession or entering into it, what words of wisdom or advice would you share with them or hope for them to receive to support their career going forward? Well, I, I kind of do that pretty regularly. I get to go talk to either college mm-hmm. classes or when I go teach. And I just try to take away the fog of how bad corrections is because there is good in corrections. Mm. There's, there's per capita. I think there's probably as many good people working corrections as there is anywhere. And maybe I'm biased, but I love being around them. I love being around them and police officers and first responders. We all have kind of the same sense of humor. I, I tell my classes, you know, when you retire, people at the coffee shop, Mm -hmm. don't laugh at your jokes. They don't get them. (laughs) So it's good to get back out there with, you know, the people I worked with who True get story. those jokes. Totally. <laughs> so um, yep. I just kind of remove that yeah, fog. Yeah, totally. It, it is what you make out of it, and it will be what you make out of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, high school yeah. to chief in D.C., anybody can do that. It wasn't that I'm that special. I just pointed in a direction and I mm-hmm. kept running until I got there. And I think anybody can do that. Uh, Have you ever listened to the Jocko Wilnick podcast? He's a Navy SEAL. No, but um, I'm familiar with the name. Yeah, Yeah. he he wrote uh, uh, Extreme Ownership, and he's a Navy SEAL. And he said one day, he said, thank God for the Navy SEALs, because where else would people like me go? And, you know, corrections Mm -hmm. is kind of like that. Thank God for corrections, because where else would people like me be able to excel? Where where else would I have those opportunities to just to just go. And when you get in the federal Bureau of prisons, I mean, there's 122 institutions nationwide and every one of those institutions Mm -hmm. has associate wardens, cook supervisors, teachers, captains, lieutenants. I mean, you name the job. So if you want the chance to go somewhere and do something new and um, corrections is the place. 
I just sounded yeah, like a commercial. That's cool. didn't I, I? I like that perspective. You did a little bit, right? Um, yeah. It was a solid marketing sell. I love, I actually love what you said. And I think that there's this really interesting piece that I want to make sure is very clear about how I think you've done that because um, I think the risk for some people is that they enter it without a plan and without a direction and they build too much of their sense of self into the identity of the job that they do. And so I think that the, the really careful balancing act that I think you managed to strike is that you did this thing where you didn't just get in and stay stagnant in a position. Um, you were always kind of like, what's the training? What's the next thing? How do I kind of like, whether it's a lateral move or an upward move, how do I keep moving? How do I mm -hmm. not stay still for too terribly long? Because I think when we stay still for too long, it, it becomes more and more personally attached, which then makes it more and more of who we are and our identity. And mm -hmm. you also did this thing where you balanced it. So you had this, but you also had this great family life and interests and activities and things that you were able to pour into over here and that you allowed to pour back into you that offer something that feels life-giving and like not the crazy messed up evilly stuff that lives in the job. And that counterbalance, I think, is the only way to keep some amount of sanity in this kind sure. of work, because I think when you spend, if you get fully invested here and your whole sense of identity and self gets here, you lose, you lose that humanity piece. Yes, you absolutely do. And I've lost, yeah. uh, there's no way that even to this day that I have lot, not lost some humanity that I will never get back. Um, you know, sure. I have... I've watched inmates cleaning up blood while I was eating the bologna sandwich for my lunch, walking through it. Um, it just doesn't yeah. phase you after a while. You, you, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's surreal. I do want to say yeah. one more thing and, and I can't believe I really glossed over this, but another way that I, I absolutely believe that I stayed sane was special teams. And if there's somebody working in corrections mm -hmm. right now, getting on those special teams, I was always, either on emergency squad. I was on the uh, correction special tactics squad. I was dog handler, uh, disturbance control team. And uh, so I was always on those teams, which builds this little, you know, connection to this brotherhood and sisterhood of a few individuals yeah. who will support you in there. Um, and it also keeps you on the mm -hmm. straight and narrow uh, because yeah. in order to be on a team, you have to reach a certain level. And if you're not keeping up that level, most of the times a team member will step over and go, hey, mm -hmm. you need to fix this. You're making this all look bad. And I think that helps a lot. And I think it's a great yeah. resource for anybody is go get on those teams, a cert team or whatever you've got at mm -hmm. your institution. Even if it's, you know, a hostage negotiation or something like that, get on those teams so that you yeah. can build that camaraderie. Because uh, that was big in my career. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and those like added skill sets, right? Like that allow you to kind of have that resume that says if I wanted to transfer somewhere else, I have that on my resume that I Absolutely. could and would if I needed to. Yep. yep. I think, again, the piece I would add to that is you're right. It, I think those pieces offer these really cool ways to feel um, like a community within a community and that degree of support and connection. Again, I've had a few clients where they share stories about like um, – participating in their union or uh, participating in special teams, but it, but it's always this like choice point 
in doing this thing, am I doing it in a way that is adding and growing my investment in this workplace in a way that detracts from my life outside? Or am I doing this in a way where I still get to hold my life outside? And if it is detracting from my life outside, that's risky. Because I think that's the place where some people get more and more and more invested because they're taking on more and more and more responsibility or interest here. And they lose access to the outside life piece. So I think you're totally right. But it's like a with with intention and caution about how you go about doing it. And you have to have a special person uh, that you're married to on the outside because my wife, sometimes I didn't come home and she might not hear from me for 24 hours if we were out on a manhunt, you know, and she just had to know that I was, you know, safe and doing my job. And that takes a special person too. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, Tell me, so I've asked all the questions I intended to ask, but- I really want to hear more about your podcast and I know that you're doing a bunch of writing. So tell us a little bit about some of your big plans in retirement. What are you up to? Well, um, just as an afterthought, when I retired, I thought about this podcast and, uh, I started the prison officer podcast and the main intention of it is try to just put out, um, a community kind of to let people know that mm-hmm. they're not alone inside. Like we've talked about, and maybe to throw some stuff yeah. I've learned out there, uh, little tips and tricks. One of mm-hmm. the podcasts that's done the best is, uh, or one of the episodes is, uh, how to be a good rookie. And that was just something I threw together, Ooh. you know? And, uh, so yeah. I've had a lot of people jump on that, which has led cool. to some of my writing. Uh, I'm here in a week or two. I'm not sure when the podcast will come out, but here in a week or two, uh, the prison officer podcast job guide is a book that I just wrote mm-hmm. and it's got six chapters cool. of how to get hired in corrections. And then the last part of it is a listing of each of the states and how to get a hold of them, private corrections, some international corrections, federal corrections, how to, you know, get a hold of them, what they pay. Cause I get a lot of questions. What should I do? Where should I go? Yeah. And so I just put all this together cool. and I just went on Amazon three days ago. So I'm getting stuff together to release that. Awesome. Yeah. And then the podcast is going great. Um, and then I, I do some writing for corrections one now and again, you can see me on there. So, yeah. um, yeah. and with being a pepperball instructor, they, they let me travel around and, uh, like I said, go get to yeah. meet more law enforcement and corrections and be around my people. <laughs> That's cool. So, Which is like, yeah. it's, it's nice when we can like use retirement to just invest harder in the projects that bring some amount of like fun or that we feel passionate about. Yeah. And I, I do, I run across a lot of people who go, why in the world don't you just walk away from it? Cause I know a lot of people that have, they retire and they don't ever even yeah. say the word prison again, but um, I still think mm-hmm. I've got a lot of stuff to say and some people to, to help along the way and make their job easier. And so I think I'll keep doing it for a while and see where it goes. That's cool. I mean, I think that we need people like that. We need people that are willing to kind of translate down their experience and wisdom to the generations coming up and and to leave that kind of legacy. Like that's a pretty cool piece to get to continue to invest in and pour out of. Yeah. Um, Very cool. You know, well, there's training yourself and 
anyway, there's training yourself. And then there's that point where you get to life and you know, you're becoming knowledgeable and you get to train others. And then there's this point at the end where uh, Mm -hmm. you're, you're a mentor and you get to direct and and help Mm -hmm. people. And, and definitely the best part. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Um, I'm curious if there's anything else, Mike, that you would want to share that you'd want our audience to hear about. Oh, um, no, just, just know that you're not alone out there. Um, I know some of you are sitting in a a seg unit right now and you know, you can't hear nothing but the roar of the voices and you're getting cussed at and things said to you that, uh, most of your family can't imagine. And, uh, it's a global Mm -hmm. corrections world out there. There's people doing this job all over the world. And, um, as long as we uh, keep that in mind and just know that we're not alone, I think it helps with the day to day. I think it does. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, totally. I super appreciate your time, Mike. And for you to take the time to share some of your wisdom and experience, I think it's wonderful. We will absolutely be linking to your podcast as well as your um, book on Amazon coming up um, to make sure that people can find that real easy if they want to jump down to the show notes and check that out. So thanks so much for your time today. Sounds good. Thank you, Lindsay. Cool. Have a great day. I want to say one more big thank you to my guest for today. It is so wonderful to get to have this opportunity to talk to some incredible and amazing people who have been out there doing the work, seeing the stuff, and figuring out how to hold it differently. I'm so grateful for the willingness of these incredible people to jump on with me, share their stories, and share with you the various ways that they're learning and finding to move through this kind of work with some amount of sanity intact. I think we can all take something really special from that. As we wrap up today, I want to encourage you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I also love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. If you have any feedback for my amazing guests today, please let me know and I'm happy to pass it along. I continue to be so amazed and inspired by this community that we are building and creating together. I'm so grateful for your support and that many of you are so incredibly keen to share about Behind the Line to others on the front lines. Thank you so much for sharing with those you know. I want to let you know that we do have ways to support sharing. So if you reach out to me, I can send you posters and cards and all kinds of other ways that you can share with your workplace and your colleagues about Behind the Line and our other resources. Also know that you can share any of our social media posts or forward any of our emails that we send you with reminders about the show. We just want more people to be supported. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Many of our summer series uh, episodes will be videotaped and we will include those recordings on YouTube. So check those out if you want to join us in real life. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes or subscribe to our email list to hear from me about all the exciting things we have going on and coming up. 
You'll find all the details you need in the show notes, and you can access our email list by clicking to get our free Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide, which helps you facilitate self-assessing burnout and related concerns. We make all of our different resources available to you guys because the work you do really, really matters to our communities, but way more than that, you matter. Your life matters, and the people who matter to you matter. And we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, but as well in your very real and amazing life outside of the work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.